Mm -hmm. Hi, everyone. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Eric, and I'm one of the pastors here at HMCC of Jakarta, and it's my privilege to preach the Word of God to us today. Uh, today, we're finishing our two-part sermon series on death. Uh, last week, we gave an overview of death, looking at the origin of death, the shadow of death, and the death of death. And we saw that when we realize how much death takes from us, we can rejoice in how much Christ has given to us. And today, we're going to specifically now address the topic of grief as we look at hope and glory in light of death. Uh, so let's get right into it. Uh, let me ask you a question. What is our only hope in life and death? This is a foundational question because any hope in life must also provide hope in death. If the object of our hope cannot overcome death, then it cannot offer real hope in life either. This is actually the first question to the New City Catechism, which is a series of 52 questions and answers to help believers learn the core doctrines of our faith. Uh, my family's used this catechism for years, and our Building Blocks Children's Ministry in Jakarta just started using it recently as well. So what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. The fact that we belong to Jesus, that we are united to Him through faith, is our only hope in life and death. My hope is that all the children and all the adults in our church would not only be able to know that, but to truly believe that with all of our hearts. You know, I don't want us just to be able to recite this question and answer, but I want this gospel truth to press deeply into our hearts that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. But nowhere is this more tested than in times of grief. When we come face to face with death and its effects or the shadow of death in our lives, we grieve. And when we grieve, we feel distressed and disoriented. You know, everything that we thought that we once knew, we're just not so sure about anymore. So in the midst of grief, in the midst of pain, loss, suffering, and even the death of loved ones, how can we still affirm that Jesus Christ is our only hope in life and death? And that's what we're going to be looking at more today. So the one thing for today is grieve with hope as we hope in glory. Grieve with hope as we hope in glory. Uh, each week we usually preach expositional sermons through one passage of scripture, but today we're taking a different approach and going to look at various passages. And just to give credit where it's due, uh, Bob Kellerman, Matthew McCullough, and Tim Keller have particularly influenced my understanding of what the Bible has to say about hope and glory amidst grief and death. So much of uh, what I'll share today will be colored with their influences, but again, all rooted in scripture. Uh, we're going to look at hope and glory amidst grief and death in two parts. So first is grieve with hope. Second, hope and glory. All right, so first, grieve with hope. You know, it's generally accepted today that there are five stages to the grief process. There's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. These are the typical grief responses that have been observed in others. But an important question to ask is this. Though these five stages describe how most people respond to grief, should they prescribe how a person should respond to grief? Or in other words, if Jesus is my only hope in life and death, what difference should that make in how I grieve? The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 14. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. 
For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So there's a certain way that the rest of mankind who have no hope in Christ grieve. There's one way they grieve. But then there's another way that believers in Jesus Christ should grieve. You know, the five-stage grief process is built on the presupposition that there is no hope, no hope in Christ. Uh, In denial, you know, we're in shock and we refuse to believe what's happened to us. You know, it can't be true. No, this this is not happening to me. Because we have no future hope, Uh, of this is not the way that it will always be. We cannot face the brutal reality of our loss. So that's denial. In anger, we're resentful of what's happened and we direct blame towards God or others or ourselves. Why is this happening to me? Why didn't you do something about it? This isn't fair. You know, if the world is an accident and everything happens at random, then there would be no reason to feel the need to direct our anger at somebody. But because we know in our heart of hearts that this world and our lives are not an accident and that everything happens for a reason, we feel the need to get angry at somebody when that purpose does not align with our desires and purposes. In other words, we inherently know that God is sovereign over his creation. But because we don't find our hope in him, we get angry at God rather than expressing our complaint to God. So that's... Uh, That's anger. Now, in bargaining, we're trying to bargain or or make a deal with God, uh, either spoken or unspoken. We say, God, if you heal my child, then I'll go to church. Or God, if you repair this relationship, then I'll never smoke again. But bargaining is essentially just a works mentality. You know, if I'm good, then God will be good to me. And God will stop bad things from happening to me if he sees that I'm a good person doing good things. But that is not the gospel. The gospel says that we are not good people. None is righteous, not one. But God alone is good. We deserve death for our sin, but in Christ, God graciously gives us eternal life. Without the hope of the gospel, we try to bargain with God rather than crying out for his mercy and grace, asking him for help because apart from him, we know that we can do nothing. So that's bargaining. Now in depression, the loss begins to sink in. And we begin to sink in our own sorrows. This is happening to me. She's gone. And there's nothing I can do to bring her back. You know, if we refuse to cry out to God, then depression naturally occurs because we've cut ourselves off from our only hope in life and death. And without God, without such hope in Him, we're left with only a earthly, under-the-sun perspective of life. And as the teacher in Ecclesiastes says, we conclude that everything is meaningless. And we begin to feel the darkness of hopelessness, of despair. So that's depression. Now, in acceptance, uh, we realize that we can't stay in our depression, but we need to move on with our lives. So we pull ourselves back together, so to speak, and we tell ourselves, life has to go on. I cannot stay here. So what do I need to do now? But acceptance is still a functional denial of death and its effects. Life needs to move on, so we distract ourselves with the busyness of life or we deaden ourselves to the reality of death and its effects because we don't want to feel how terrible it is anymore. In other words, we cope through denial or acceptance, but we don't experience any real hope. And there might be all kinds of things that we tell ourselves to accept death. Some people tell themselves that we just need to accept death because it's just a natural part of life. 
Everyone lives and everyone dies. There's nothing you can do about it, so there's no reason to get emotional about it. If you ever watched the movie The Lion King, this would be the circle of life perspective. When we die, we become fertilizer for trees and plants, which then provide food uh, for the living. And it's supposed to be this wonderful circle of life. Or similarly, some people tell themselves that since our bodies are made up of the elements that are found in stars, that when people die, their bodies return to dust. And someday, in billions of years, the dust of our bodies will form new stars. But inherently, I think we all feel that something is wrong with that kind of acceptance. You know, we're more than just fertilizer or even stardust. We're made in the image of God. We have a God-given unique identity, dignity, meaning, and purpose. And not only that, God created us to live forever. Death was not part of God's original design for His good creation. The fundamental problem with the five-stage grief process is that there is no real hope. So you go through a process where you kind of start with denial and then you end with a more sophisticated, rationalized version of denial because you just need to move on with your life. So if the five-stage grief process is how people grieve without hope, how do we grieve with hope? In short, we grieve deeply and we hope deeply. You know, I know that might sound a bit simplistic, uh, so if you're looking for a more detailed explanation of the process of grieving with hope and that journey of grieving with hope, I'd recommend a very short book called God's Healing for Life's Losses, How to Find Hope When You're Hurting by Bob Kellerman. But for the sake of time, let me just unpack these two essential elements of grief and hope. Grieving with hope, first I need to say, is not a middle position on a spectrum where grief is on one extreme and hope is on the other extreme. It's not this middle between these two extremes. Grieving with hope is holding both grief and hope, both extremes, in tension in somewhat of a paradox. It's like something being bittersweet. The day my sons go off to university will be a bittersweet day for me. I'll grieve the fact that they're no longer uh, in our home after 18 years of being under my care, but I'll also be filled with such joy seeing my boys and how they're maturing and, and developing into hopefully godly and responsible men. And I'm sure parents giving their daughter off to be married feel the same extreme emotions, an overwhelming sense of sadness, yet an overwhelming sense of joy. You know, when facing the death of a loved one, uh, as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't suppress our, our, our emotions to cope under the guise that death is simply natural and that we just need to accept it. And we don't allow our emotions to wreck us with unchecked anger, bitterness, or despair. Rather, we simultaneously feel the full weight of this is not the way it's supposed to be. We grieve. And also, this is not the way it always will be. We hope. We hold both of these truths in tension. We grieve with hope. In John chapter 11, uh, Jesus' friend Lazarus, he's died. And when Jesus goes to meet Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, and sees all those who are grieving over Lazarus' death, he doesn't tell them, you know, death is natural, so we should just accept it. Why are you guys all getting emotional about this? But in the shortest verse in the Bible, it says simply this, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And twice it says that Jesus was deeply moved, which could also be translated as he was indignant or he was angry. You know, keep in mind that just in a few more verses, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. 
So why is Jesus grieved and angry? It's because death is not natural. It's not the way God designed creation and life to be in this world. Though death is man's punishment for sin, God does not take pleasure in punishing sin. Sin and death have corrupted every aspect of God's good creation. You know, I see the mix of grief and anger in my oldest son when my youngest son wrecks his Lego creation. You know, he says, you don't do that. Never do that again. And then he begins to rebuild again. You know, even though he knows that he can rebuild his creation, it doesn't lessen the grief and anger that he feels at the fact that his original creation has been wrecked. Jesus knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, but it doesn't lessen the grief and anger that he feels as he sees and feels the consequences of sin and death that have wrecked his good creation. By the way, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, though God forgives your sin, it doesn't lessen the grief and anger he has towards your sin. Yes, Christ died as your substitute, and if your faith is in him, then you are forgiven. But that should never lessen the atrocity of sin that we should recognize and the grief and anger towards sin that we should feel. And that should drive us to genuine repentance. And all the more, grief and anger are appropriate when the consequences of sin affect those you love. You don't grieve or get angry over things that you don't care about. For us, we grieve our sin because it is against the God we love. For Jesus, he grieved the death of Lazarus because it was against someone he loved. As believers in Jesus Christ, since we have been deeply loved by Christ, he then calls us to love others deeply. But that also means that we will experience much grief in life as we see those we love experience the consequences of sin, especially death. You know, like Christ, we are also called to weep with those who weep. The more we love, the more we'll weep. So let me just pause to pose a reflection question. When was the last time you wept with someone who was going through pain and suffering? When was the last time you wept with someone who was going through pain and suffering? Just think back over the last couple of years during this pandemic when so many people around us have lost. You know, I know that we might not always be aware of the suffering that other people are going through. And even if we are aware, we don't always know exactly how to respond. And I'm definitely not saying that we all need to cry as evidence that we truly love people. But what's your disposition towards others who are going through pain and suffering? Do you draw near or do you pull away? Are you willing to inconvenience yourself to weep with those who weep, so to speak? Imagine that you just lost a loved one. You know, for some of us, you don't even have to imagine, but this is the reality that you're going through right now. What would you want from your spiritual family? Those you call brothers and sisters in Christ. Would you want a phone call, a message, a follow-up call or a message? Someone to pray for you, someone to pray with you when you don't feel like you have the words or even the strength to pray? You know, I'm not saying that the responsibility falls on any one person, but as a whole church family, do we weep with those who weep? Now, let me speak to those who are suffering now for a moment. I know that the tendency and the temptation for those who are suffering is to separate ourselves from God and from His people. All the while, while we expect more from God and from His people while we're suffering. 
We want comfort, but then we struggle to open ourselves up to, to, to where comfort may be found in the presence of Christ and the presence of fellow members in his body. Satan would try to deceive you during these times and telling you that you're, you're alone, you're abandoned, you're uncared for, you're unloved, you're unwanted, and that the best thing for you to do is to turn away from God and from his people. And I just want to tell you that that is a lie from hell. Fight that lie with all God's might, with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and prayers alongside all the saints. Fight that lie. You are not alone or unloved, but you have a God whose love moved him to go to the cross for you. And you have a spiritual family that God has given you that we might all tangibly experience and express the love of Christ to one another. Jesus said that by this, all people will know that we are his disciples if we have love for one another. So may we be a church that reflects Christ more and more as we love and grieve and weep with one another through pain and suffering. So we are to grieve, but we are also to grieve with hope. And what is the hope that we have? It's that because Jesus died and rose again, all those who are united to Christ through faith will also rise again. But this hope entirely depends on whether Christ really did rise from the grave. If not, then there's really no hope at all for any of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 and 19 say this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then he has no victory over sin and death. And so we are still in our sins and all those who die are totally lost. There is no eternal life, but only death. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then Christians are the most pitiful of people in this world. They foolishly commit their lives to a dead man who has no power to help them overcome death. In other words, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then we all live meaningless lives and we all have no hope in the face of death. But thankfully, that's not how the passage ends. It continues in verses 20 to 22. It says this, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also uh, comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. If Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, then all those who are united to him through faith will also be made alive. The term first fruits is an agricultural image, which means that if you see the first fruits, you know that the rest of the harvest will come. The first fruits foreshadow and guarantee the harvest to come. So if Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, then his resurrected glorified body foreshadows and, and guarantees that all those who believe in him will also be raised from the dead and live forever with him and one another in our own resurrected and glorified bodies. In Christ, we have the hope of resurrection. For believers in Jesus Christ, death is not goodbye, but it's always see you later. And not only that, but the next time that we see each other, we'll see each other in our true glorified selves without the presence of sin. 
you know, all the glimpses in this life of who I knew you could be one day will be brought out in full. No longer hidden behind all of our sin and weaknesses that blur who you are right now. And you'll see me as my true glorified self as well. And what a reunion that day will be. And I hope as believers in Jesus Christ, we all long for that day. You know, at this point, I need to clarify that this hope is only for believers in Jesus Christ. But I know that not all of our loved ones who pass away are believers in Jesus Christ. So an important question to wrestle with is this. How are we as believers to respond amidst the deaths of our unbelieving loved ones? You know, this is not an easy question to wrestle with. But let me attempt to offer just a few thoughts to help us in our struggle. First, is we recognize that none of us truly know the state of another person's soul. We recognize that none of us truly knows the state of another's soul. The thief on the cross who put his faith in Christ at the 11th hour of his life is enough precedence uh, for us to know that deathbed conversions occur that nobody else in their lives might be aware of. Second, we remember the character of God and that salvation belongs to him. We remember the character of God and that salvation depends on him. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is rich in mercy. He is not stingy with mercy, but he delights to show mercy and grace to sinners. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. He desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So we can ultimately rest on the character of God and say along with all the saints, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? We don't have the capacity to fully see or understand God's justice and all of his actions right now, but one day we will. And if there's any guilt or fault that you feel for not doing more to share the gospel or show the gospel or be a better gospel witness so that your loved one could have trusted in Christ, just remember that salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's true that perhaps all of us could be better and more faithful at sharing and showing the gospel to our loved ones. But at the end of the day, God sovereignly and mercifully saves, not us. Third, we run to God with our grief. We run to God with our grief. When Paul thinks of his many fellow Jews who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. When Jesus came to Jerusalem and thought about how his fellow Jews would reject him and the terrible judgment they would experience as consequence, he weeps over the city. The grief over the death of unbelieving loved ones is not unique to us. But all the saints and even Jesus himself knows the same anguish and grief. And God's word says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. God invites you to turn to Him, to bring your complaint with all of your distraught emotions and thoughts before Him, to ask boldly for help to Him and to allow Him to take that burden off of you as you choose to trust Him. You know, if we know that this is the God who did not shield Himself from pain, but entered into our suffering and went to the cross for us, then we know that He empathizes with us in our pain. And so we run to him with our grief and we trust him with our grief, even amidst the death of unbelieving loved ones. So first, grieve in hope. 
And second, hope and glory. In order to grieve with hope, we need to have a deep grasp of our hope. Jesus' resurrection and our hope of glory in him cannot just be abstract doctrine that we affirm, but it needs to be so deeply rooted and so deeply personal that it begins to change our perspective of all of life. The Apostle Paul writes this in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 21. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Paul was well acquainted with suffering and loss. He was beaten and stoned in prison, experienced many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, in cold and exposure. He saw dear friends and brothers in Christ die for their faith. And he saw dear friends abandon their faith for the cares of this world. He knew great suffering and loss. So he is not in any way trying to minimize any of our suffering and loss that we're going through. Rather, he's trying to help us maximize our hope and glory. He's not diminishing our pain. He's trying to maximize our sight of glory. Glory here is referring to our glorification in the new heavens and new earth, where all those who believe in Christ will be raised from the dead and live forever with him and with one another in our own resurrected and glorified bodies. Paul describes our lives right now as sufferings and frustration, but also eager expectation. In this life, as believers in Jesus Christ, we grieve deeply and we hope deeply. But our hope in glory far surpasses any grief that we experience in this life. He continues in verses 22-25 saying this, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Paul uses here the image of groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Except it's not a nine-month pregnancy, but it's a lifetime of pregnancy. Or more accurately, it's a lifetime of being in labor, experiencing all the contraction pains every few minutes with no C-section and no epidural to quicken or lessen the pain. If you're a mother, I'm sure that's probably one of the most terrifying images of pain you can have. But it's not just the physical pain, but there's also the pain of longing. Mothers long to have the baby in their arms. So as they hear the doctor say over and over again, not yet, just a little longer. The baby's coming soon. Keep pushing. You're almost there. It increases their groaning. How much longer must I endure this pain? How much longer until I can have the joy of holding my baby? But what happens when the baby finally comes and is in the mother's arms? There's relief. There's joy. The birth of the child doesn't diminish how painful the childbirth was. But the mother is no longer thinking and consumed with her pain, but she's thinking and consumed with love for her child. The child was worth the pain. The joy of having the child far surpasses any pain that was experienced in the process. But I think there are two common problems for why we struggle to have this kind of perspective. 
the kind of perspective where we can honestly say that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will, that will be revealed in us. The first problem is I'm not sure if we all have an accurate expectation for this life. You know, especially in this generation, we're tempted to live with a baseline expectation of comfort and convenience and control. We expect to be satisfied in this world. So when we suffer, we think something strange is happening to us. Because we did not expect sufferings and frustrations in this life, we get frustrated and disappointed when God would allow us to suffer. As long as we think that suffering is abnormal in this life, we'll be tempted to see suffering as a sign of God's absence and lack of care for us. But ironically, suffering, sin, and death are the very reasons that Christ came into this world to free us from the bondage of suffering, sin, and death in this life and to give us hope of glory in the life to come without their presence any longer. That's why He came. It's only when we come to grips with the sufferings and frustration of this world that we'll even begin to long for the new world that Christ has promised and secured for us. The second problem for us is I'm, sure, I'm not sure if we all have an accurate expectation of the life to come. There's no indication in Scripture that we will lose our personal consciousness when we all die. In fact, it's emphatic that we will not lose who we are. When Jesus is questioned by the Sadducees about the resurrection of the dead, this is what he says in Matthew chapter 22, verses 31 to 32. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You know, God did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob until they died. He doesn't say, I am the God of those who were formerly known as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they're not who they once were anymore. He doesn't say that. No, even though they have died in this life, Abraham is still Abraham. Isaac is still Isaac. Jacob is still Jacob. And they still live with God as they eagerly await the resurrection of their bodies, which is the whole point of this discourse. And why is this important? Because there's nothing to look forward to if you lose your personal consciousness, if you lose who you are. If you lose who you are, what good is it to be fertilizer or stardust or drop in the ocean or a different person in another life? It's no good to you at all. The reason I think this means so much to us is because God made us to be relational beings. We long to be fully known and we long to be fully loved. We want to know one another in relationship to who we are and not lose that. We want a loving relationship, uh, all of our loving relationships here on earth to never end. And as believers in Jesus Christ, that's exactly what will happen in the life to come. And that's why heaven has been described as a world of love. A world of love. But more than any other relationship, the biggest emphasis of the life to come is that we will be with the Lord forever. We will be with God forever. You know, our personal relationship with Christ will no longer be by faith, but it will be finally by sight. We shall see Him face to face and we shall be we shall know fully as we are fully known. You know, think of the happiest moment in your life. Perhaps it was the day your dad said to you, I'm proud of you. Or maybe it was the day you got married or your honeymoon or when your first child was born. Or maybe it was the day you repented of your sins and you believed in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Just think of, just allow that to sink in. The happiest moments in your life. 
if our happiest moments in this life, though tainted by sin and death, are so joyful to us, what will it be like to taste the joys that await us in the untainted presence of Christ, Himself the fountainhead of all joy? The more and more we grasp this hope of glory that awaits us in the life to come, the more and more we'll be able to honestly say our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us or revealed in us. You know, now it's one thing to say that Jesus is our only hope in life and death. But how does this hope sink deep into our hearts? Again, we go back to John chapter 11 to see how Jesus helped Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, grieve with hope as they hoped in glory. We left off with Jesus weeping with those who were weeping. But there's something else that we need to see here. Before Lazarus died in Jerusalem, Jesus was doing ministry in Bethany, which was just two miles away. So Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. You know, Lazarus isn't even mentioned by name. He's defined by Jesus' love for him. He whom you love. So what did Jesus do when he heard that the one whom he loves was sick? John chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus could have traveled two miles to go heal Lazarus while he was still sick. He had already shown himself to be able to heal those who were sick in in his ministry. And yet, because Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he waits two days longer until Lazarus is dead. Dead, dead. And then it says in verses 14 and 15, Then Jesus told them, his disciples plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him. This is almost maddening at this point. Jesus waited for Lazarus to die when he could have prevented it. And now he says that he's glad that he wasn't there to prevent it. But as maddening as that sounds, listen to Jesus' reason for doing so. So that you may believe. So that you may believe. I think this just shows a different set of priorities that Jesus has for us. We want Jesus to prevent us from experiencing pain and suffering. We often think that if he allows us to suffer, then he doesn't love us. Here it shows the exact opposite. Because Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he allows them to suffer even to the point of death. Now why would he do that? Because what's best and most important for them is that they believe in him to recognize who He is and to hold fast to Him no matter what. And the only way that they will truly believe in Him is if they experience death and its effects. When Jesus arrives, both Mary and Martha say to Him, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. And now listen to the exchange between Jesus and Martha in verses 23 to 27. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to Him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Martha knows that her brother will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But she doesn't really know it. 
It's still head knowledge, conceptual doctrine, but it hasn't been internalized so deeply in her heart that she can grieve with hope. So Jesus wants to transform her abstract belief in the resurrection into a deeply personal belief in Him as the only one who can provide it. Uh, Tim Keller, author of Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he writes this, One of the main ways we move from abstract knowledge about God to a personal encounter with Him as a living reality is through the furnace of affliction. As C.S. Lewis famously put it, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. Believers understand many doctrinal truths in the mind, but those truths seldom make the journey down into the heart except through disappointment, failure, and loss. As a man who seemed about to lose both his career and his family once said to me, I always knew in principle that Jesus is all you need to get through, but you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. End quote. Jesus brought those he loved to the point of great suffering and even death because he wanted them to see him as the resurrection and the life. He allowed them to experience grief so that they would see that this is why he has come and this is why they need him. He wanted them to see that there is no other hope in life and death except in him. And so he asked for the stone to be rolled away and then he simply said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, just walked out of the tomb alive again. But then right after this, the rest of John chapter 11 tells us that this was the last straw for the Jews. Since this great sign was done in Jerusalem, they feared that everyone would begin to believe in Jesus and cause trouble for them with the Roman authorities. So it says in verse 53, So from that day on, they made plans to put him, Jesus, to death. And Jesus knew that this would happen. So in raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus was sealing his own fate. But in order for Jesus to get Lazarus out of the tomb, he would have to put himself in it. In order to give us such a great hope for resurrection, Jesus would first have to die in our place. But in dying, he would also rise. And if Jesus has truly been raised from the dead, then all those who are united to him through faith, we can now grieve with hope in the one that we know and call the resurrection and the life. You know, like Mary and Martha, we cannot raise anyone from the dead. And like Lazarus, we cannot raise ourselves from the dead. But our hope is in the one who can raise the dead and who has indeed raised himself up from the grave. So what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, this hope is available to you. If you would acknowledge that God created you and you're accountable to Him and that you've sinned against Him by neglecting and disobeying Him, but because of God's great love, He sent Jesus Christ as our substitute to live the sinless life that we were supposed to live, to take the punishment for sin that we deserve by dying on the cross for us and resurrecting to new life. So now, if you would only respond by repenting of your sins, believing in Jesus, and following Christ as Lord and Savior for the rest of your life, you can be forgiven of your sins, and you can know this great hope that we have in Him. I pray that you do that today, and that for the first time, you'd be able to say with all the saints that Jesus is our only hope in life and death. Now, to hope in glory is what many Christians have called being heavenly-minded, heavenly-minded. We set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. It's to know that this world is not our home, but we're just pilgrims on our journey toward our true 
home in heaven. This hope in glory is what pulls us through the grief. But the reality is that we're all prone to be more earthly-minded rather than heavenly-minded because the cares of this world constantly fight for our attention and try to choke out God's great promises to us. You know, imagine you're in an electronics store and there are massive HD TVs surrounding you that are showing the latest news, the latest movies, the latest shows, the latest sports games, the latest everything that you're interested in. But then over the store's loudspeaker, they're playing the radio. Which do you think you're going to pay attention to? The, the HD videos or the radio? Probably every time you tune out the audio radio over the loudspeaker and you turn your attention to the HD video that's surrounding you. That's the world that we live in. The cares of this world are like that HD video that's calling us to be earthly minded. And God's promises of the glory that awaits us is like the audio that's calling us to be heavenly minded. And if we're not intentional about cultivating heavenly mindedness or cultivating our hope and glory, it's almost a guarantee that we'll be more earthly minded and we'll grieve like the rest of mankind with no hope. You know, God has given us the ordinary means of grace to cultivate heavenly mindedness. The word, prayer, corporate worship, fellowship with other believers. And there are no shortcuts. In the word, God speaks to us and we set aside time to hear him loud and clear. In prayer, we respond to God in the conversation that he started with us in his word. In corporate worship, we come together as a whole church body to worship God together for who he is, what he's done for us, what he means for us, and what he's promised to us. In fellowship with other believers, we intentionally help one another to better understand and apply the gospel in our lives. And all of this is simply just the regular part of church life together. So I cannot tell you how much good just showing up consistently week after week to church gatherings can do in helping you to cultivate a hope and glory. But even more than just passively showing up to Sunday celebration, life group, and prayer gathering, we can also actively create habits that help us to be more heavenly minded. You know, get on a daily Bible reading plan. There's lots that we have suggested on our website. You can find one that fits you. Read good Christian books. There are lots of great Christian ebooks that we have available for free on our website to members in our church. Start your morning with the Lord's Prayer, and you won't even get past the first line, Our Father in Heaven, before you start thinking about heaven. Pause in the middle of your day amidst the sufferings and frustration to remind yourself with this short prayer, God, I know that this is not the way it's supposed to be. But I also know that this is not the way that it always will be. Help me to hope in glory. And then begin to set your mind on things above. Or set aside one to two nights a week uh, to spend time with people in our church and pray together and pray for each other in light of our hope for glory. Again, there are no shortcuts to cultivate heavenly mindedness. But God has given us the ordinary means of grace. So will you allow them, these ordinary means, just be crackling AM radio in the background of your life that you just tune out? Or will we press our ears to this loudspeaker so that the hope of glory we have in Christ will grow louder and louder in our lives? You know, D.L. Moody, the 19th century American evangelist, while he was dying, he said this, Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. In the face of grief and death, by God's grace, May we as a church also be able to have such hope and glory. Here's a life application. First is, with the people in your life and in our church, how can you weep with those who weep? If you're currently suffering, how can you invite those in your life and our church to weep with you? 
Now, let me just say that grieving with hope is not a linear process. It's more like two steps forward and one step backwards. It's very messy and deeply personal, though it should never be private and isolated from others. If we look at the Psalms, we should expect that grieving with hope looks very raw and very frequent. It's never one and done, but grieving with hope characterizes our whole lives. Still, you know, we're not aimlessly going nowhere. We're pilgrims on our journey to our heavenly home. And we're not just individual pilgrims left to ourselves, but we're a family of pilgrims traveling together. So let's grieve with hope together on this journey. Second life application is what are specific ways that you can cultivate hope and glory or, or cultivate heavenly mindedness? And just think of one corporate habit and one personal habit that you can develop. Again, maybe it's just showing up consistently to church-wide gatherings. Maybe it's pausing in your day just to lift up that short prayer. This is not the way it's supposed to be, but God, I know this is not the way it always will be. Help me to hope in you. Help me to hope in glory. You know, whatever it is, just start with something small and doable and make it a habit. And then over the years, as we turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So once again, the one thing is grieve with hope as we hope in glory. Let's take some time now to respond to God's word.